Well, knowing that I had the opportunity to bring more than just a single message over the next few months, I wanted to dive into a book where we could go through it, gain some continuity, have a better overall picture rather than just grabbing a few verses, but to go through, and we've chosen First Thessalonians, but to go through this together. And why First Thessalonians? Well, there's a few reasons. One, I would bet that this is one of the epistles that you turn to the least. And there's reason for that that we'll get to. But I think one of the primary ones is that it's not a very doctrine-heavy book. And so it could be that whenever you're looking for heavy doctrine to explain things, you might turn to Romans or Galatians, Ephesians, you know, the book of John, Hebrews. But what we're coming here to in 1 Thessalonians is, a, is more like rather than getting the doctrine and then finding practice out of it, we're going the opposite way. We're looking at the lives of the Thessalonians and understanding what was going on that would cause this. It's like, it's like taking a picture and trying to figure out what type of camera took this picture. We've got to work backwards. But more than just my curiosity, the Lord has preserved these letters for us. And there would be a reason for that. Not just that we'd have them, but that we would hear them, that we would read them, that we would accept them, love them, and so follow the Lord by applying these to our lives and to our hearts. But this is a letter to a church that was doing well. I think that's a bit of an anomaly as likewise, is because in many cases, whenever we talk about churches, what do we talk about? But their yeah, their trouble, their problems, where they've gone awry, their errors. But how long have you ever been in conversation just praising the work of God in a local church where you say, this is amazing on what God is doing in the lives of these people? It's harder to do than you might think. And so I wanted to dive into this to see what's in here because we know it's valuable. The Lord has preserved it for us. And so we don't want to neglect it. And we don't come across any long rebukes, no major doctrinal errors. We come across a young church that's doing well in the midst of affliction. And whenever I first opened the book, I thought, well, there's not a whole lot here. We should be able to accomplish this pretty quick. And then I outlined the whole book and I realized this is going to take us forever. Praise the Lord. So with that as our starting point, because I have a lot of background, the setting, the context for what's going on, I want to start our time with prayer. Lord, we thank you for preserving your word. We sit here 2,000 years later. Lord, we would be so far removed from what happened if you had not preserved your word and all the technologies that have brought us what we have here today. The Lord, we... We have it so accessible, Lord, that we neglect it. And Lord, may that not be. May we turn from that. May we investigate your word. And Lord, bless us through this. This is a, a church that loved you, that started off doing well in the midst of affliction. And Lord, we can find great encouragement from that. So let our time be encouraging, upbuilding, admonishing where need be. 
But Lord, in all of these things, may we hear your word and receive it as it truly is, the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so applied to our lives, be better imitators of Christ. Lord, do this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, I want to give a setting. So before you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I would actually have you to turn to Acts chapter 16, because putting this in context and seeing why this letter was written or, or the group into which it was written is uh, the, one of the most important things that we would have to understanding what is uh, brought to us this morning. So in Acts chapter 16, Paul is on his second missionary journey, and he's come from the east, and he arrives at a place as he's heading west. And it says in Acts 16, he was stopped from going north, stopped from going south. You've already been east, so where do you go? West. In in chapter 16, verse 9, this vision appears. So 9 and 10, it says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia, which was actually west of where he was. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us there, or called us to preach the gospel to them. So as he's going, the first city he would have arrived at was Philippi. And as he's going around the Aegean Sea, the first one was Philippi, the second one was Thessalonica, and then Berea. And if he kept going, that's whenever he finally gets down into Corinth. But this city of Thessalonica was named after the half-sister of Alexander the Great. And at the time, it's a city of about 200,000 people, which for this area is a very large city, the largest one in the Macedonian region. And it was the capital of the area. When you read in the scriptures about Macedonia and Achaia, it's the same area that was then combined into later it's just referred to as Macedonia. But this was the mother of all cities. This was the one with which everybody looked. Because where it was located at the top of the sea, and this is in modern day Greece. So if you go on Google Maps... You can look for it, it's still there. And instead of Thessalonica, it's just Solonica or Solonica. They just took a few letters off there. But it's neat because our history, it, it's still there. Google Maps. It's interesting. But this was a major hub because whenever the sea came in and you wanted to go north on land, you would take the sea as far as you could, and whenever you stopped, You had the roads going north, but then everything coming east and west came through that area, through the top of the sea. So Thessalonica had a little bit of everything, well, a lot of everything. This was where all the communication happened. This was where all the trade came from, whether it was going out to sea or into sea or across the land. So what happens whenever you have people coming from everywhere? They bring their culture with them. And so that's where, as we go through 1 Thessalonians, we'll, we'll hear about the idolatry that was going on. And some of it was quite rampant. But it's also a port city. And what do you get in port cities? Well, before that, before, you get the sailors, you get the men who've been out to sea for some time, and they come in, and there are a large number of 
women that would apply a trade. So you see that whenever Paul is ministering in this letter in chapter 4, that context is why you hear him talking about that the will of God is that each one of you know how to control his own body, not in the passion and the lust. It's because this was a city rampant with not only the sailors and the men looking for opportunity, but also the women applying their trade. And as it's in Greece, it would be no surprise that there was a considerable population of Greeks. But what we have are the Hellenistic Jews. These are Jews by ethnicity, Jews by their religion, but they were Greek in their culture. The way that they thought was different than those in Jerusalem. And that speaks to a lot of the content with which Paul addresses. He's not in this letter being attacked as being a false apostle, so we don't get him defending his apostleship. He was in the context where he was having to defend, was he impressive enough? Was he sincere enough? Was this genuine enough? So in chapter 2, we get him talking about, if I was here in boldness. It wasn't false or impure. I wasn't trying to make money off from you. And that's different whenever we run into some of the epistles where he's being attacked by the Jews rather than the Greeks, and he's defending his apostleship. Here, it's different. He is defending the message itself. Thessalonica was a free city which meant that there was no real local government overseeing this. And we'll see that as we flip one page over into Acts chapter 17 to see the context, the the actual details, the play-by-play of what Paul experienced whenever he was there in Thessalonica to minister. So this free city had the citizens, or they had set up their own form of government. It wasn't of Rome. So if you have turned to Acts chapter 17, this was Paul's experience in this city. Now start in verse 1. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And when Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer And to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, and set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. They let him go because if this new king was being proclaimed, then all of a sudden Rome had a reason to intervene. They had a reason to show up. So, hey, how about we just hush these guys down? 
let's shut them up, whatever we can, just, just get them out of town, okay? We don't want problems here. And these are the guys, everywhere they've been, have stirred up trouble as they saw it, and now here they are. So let's get them out of there. Well, look what happens in verse 10 and 11, because this is how Paul exits. It says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So there's a a comparison there that we will get to, but consider this context for which Paul is writing a letter now back to this church. So this was on his second journey, but whenever he reasoned with them for three Sabbaths, roughly how long do you think Paul was actually in Thessalonica? You could say three weeks. Well, we hear also that he labored, that they did business. So you might extend that to what? Maybe three months. I'd I'd say maybe six weeks. So this is a, a very short time frame. As compared to Corinth, he was there for years. But what we have is a letter from an establishing pastor, an evangelist who goes into this city. And now that was his exit. Okay? So he saw this very warm, very... uh, genuine outpouring the the people really received the gospel and as we go through first thessalonians we'll hear him say it was preached to you with power and you guys accepted this but then he's ripped away literally in verse 10 the brothers immediately sent paul and silas away by night so they rushed him out at night has that ever happened to you so you're having to imagine what that would be like If you went to stay and the city was in such an uproar that you had to be snuck out by nightfall, that that would be very impactful. And so now separated from them, he's wondering, well, what what happened? Because I, I went out, you know, in a bad situation. And so as time goes on, he sends Timothy and this is first Thessalonians chapter three. He sends Timothy back and says, how are they doing? What what's going on? And now Timothy has come back and given a positive report. And so here's his letter now, writing back to them. He hears that they've continued in the faith. And he wants also to encourage them and to answer a few other questions. Questions that, I mean, consider how long he knew them. He's not able to give all of the detailed specifics like we get in the letters to the Corinthians. He had a long time with them, and you could assume many conversations. Compare that to the Thessalonians, and he has to give a more broad, more general counsel because he he doesn't have as much context. He doesn't have as much to work with. So what would a pastor write then? Well, he writes answers to their questions with big, long-lasting, eternal answers, like wait for his son, endure. You're doing well. Things that are of a great encouragement that we don't often hear. I mean, you can count how many times you've had criticisms versus encouragements. Just tally them up over a day. 
Tell me which one stands out. No, we see a pastor who says, I know these are, I was there a short time. They're not fully mature. They're, they're not even where the Bereans down the street were. But these men were genuine. And that's what we're going to look at. How does he know they were genuine? He was only there a short time. What, what would be the evidence of that? And with the title of how the gospel was received, we're investigating how does Paul know that this is legit? What does it look like? So he wants to minister to them in a way that would cause them to endure. And these are two of our big themes. And so with the amount of time that I have today, I'm going to limit myself to just these two themes. But as we go through 1 Thessalonians, I didn't want today to be all background setting. That'd be, that'd be boring. And that is, a, that is a crime to bore people with the Bible. It's in a, I think it's a class three felony. Yeah, the themes that we have here, they jump, jump out right at the beginning, that the Thessalonian church is doing well. And so while they're not fully mature, how do I get them to go further? And he's saying over the course of this, you have been doing well. You've started well. Keep going, keep going, keep going. And a second theme is that he knows the gospel took root. Look at in 1 Thessalonians, that's where we'll be now. In chapter 1, he's saying things like, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Chapter 2, verse 14, you brothers have become imitators of the churches of God in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you, he's brought good news of your faith and your love. Paul has evidence Paul has evidence that these people believe. Praise the Lord. And so that is where we aim, starting in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I have received a lot of emails and text messages. But this, imagine receiving that, that I know you are a man of God because I have seen your life. I have seen how much it changed. 
I see what you hold fast to. I mean, usually we get the criticisms. Hey, you know, we, we see some areas over here that need work. You know, we did this. Hey, watch out. But to get this kind of encouragement that says, I saw the way that you lived. I saw who you were and what happened and how you now live. Praise the Lord. So we are focused primarily on verses 1 to 3 this morning. This is a letter written from the Apostle Paul. We are quite familiar with him. We have uh, studied and been through many of his letters, and I think he needs no introduction. But who are Sylvanus and Timothy? In my mind, I mean, if you're like me, you think they're kind of like the seminary students, you know, maybe the high schoolers on, on missions trips. Like, who are these guys? You know, they were just tag-alongs. Well, Sylvanus shows up in First and Second Thessalonians and also in Second Corinthians. But whenever we were reading in Acts and it was Silas, it's the same man. Why? Well, I, I would say it's possibly because of the audience. Luke wrote the book of Acts to Theophilus, and Paul wrote First Thessalonians to a small local church in which this man ministered. But there's also the possibility that this is a Jew. So Silvanus was, from Acts 15, verse 25, he was an elder in the Jerusalem church, and now he's going abroad. The next verse, speaking of Silas, says he that, uh, in Acts 15, 26, that he was a man who risked his life for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 27, it says he was a preacher. So when we think that this is just Paul and a few other guys, no, this is an elder in the Jerusalem church who is also a preacher. But whenever he goes into a new context, they knew him by a different name. Same man. Timothy, who has a bigger role in this, he was probably your seminary student. In Acts 15, Paul picked him up in Lystra. It says that he was well spoken of by the brothers. And so Paul wanted Timothy, Timothy to accompany him. He was, the, uh, he was the spring chicken of the group. He was the guy that ran back to Thessalonica, you know, whenever it was all stirred up. Had Timothy go in there? Paul stayed, uh, stayed away. <laughs> There's some wisdom there. But we have Paul and Silas, or Silvanus, these, these men who are known. These men are established, mature in the faith, and Timothy. And it is to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. This is a common greeting. There's nothing lengthy. Not, this is standard, straightforward. But from there is what, where we're going to begin spending our attention, uh, specifically in verse 3. But verse 2, you get this immediate sense of relief. You know, this is a pastor. He's had a good report about this church. So he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And the thankfulness, the constant prayer, these are themes throughout chapter 2 and 3, so I didn't want to lay heavy on these because they're, chapters 1, 2, and 3, there's kind of a cyclical nature. And if I spent time here, I would do better to uh, land on thankfulness and constant prayer elsewhere. So to speak to it briefly, I think you would understand, have you ever ministered to somebody with which you then lost contact? Which is amazing in the social media days that you could lose contact with somebody. 
and you think, how do I text this person after I've you know, neglected them or how do I you know, hit them up? Well, Paul didn't have that. He had the urgency of how are these people doing? He didn't see their Facebook posts. He didn't get their Twitter feed. He had to write and send it via Timothy. But what we want to zero in on this morning is what happened in Thessalonica. Not only once Paul was there, but now he's left. He's been gone for a few months, and he is saying, what happened there? What is this testimony that was so impactful for him? And it's a threefold, and we find it there in verse 3. This triad of evidence that Paul says, that based on this, I know you were chosen of God. And it's this. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul was looking for. Do they show faith? Have they turned from one to another? Is love the motive and does it endure? Because that's the Christian testimony. So where we start, the work of faith. What stood out to Paul was the Thessalonians' response to the gospel. This response was so clear, so genuine, that in verse 9 and 10, consider their reputation that went out. It says, of a third party, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. So he's praising the Thessalonians. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. I mean, by the end of Second Thessalonians, you're, you're familiar with the, the rebuke that if you don't, well, if you don't work, you don't. Okay, so you're very familiar with that. The the impact that the, the gospel had on the Thessalonians was so impactful. Like whenever you talk about hope in expecting Christ's return, it was so expected that they stopped working. I mean, that is a very acute expectation. Whenever he said Christ is returning, they like unlocked the door, like any moment now. And it actually got into a, a sinful area where they were neglecting and they were neglecting what was responsive, what they should do in their responsibility. And what happened? Well, then he's having to rebuke them for being busybodies and for gossips. But at the beginning, that was how firm. It was reputation changing how well that they received the gospel preached to them. Well, their works of faith were on that same level. But I, I don't want to uh, move so fast through this that I would lose anybody. But I think there's a maturity here in this congregation that if I were to launch into, on this term here, the works of faith, to, to go and describe to everybody here that works don't save you, I think if I did a Q&A on that, you would all pass. Well, there's nothing in this letter here that that paul's addressing that they may have been confused nothing about his gospel were they now saying well we have to have works to save us so he doesn't write about that all of the work done to make us righteous was done where 
I heard the cross on the cross by who? Yeah, by, by someone else. So those who are in Christ are now righteous, righteous before God. Okay, so then we have been saved by grace for the purpose of good works, Ephesians 2.10. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. And if we were to go through James chapter 2, James lays out on how the proof, the material proof, so what you could see, the material proof of my faith is demonstrated through good works. And whenever Paul's talking to the Thessalonians in verse 9, and he's saying that the reception we have on how you turned to God from idols, there was, I mean, remember the context of the city, there was a material observable change. They no longer had their idols. And it wasn't just that they got rid of them, but what did they replace them with? But with faithful works to God. So there was a material change. He could see that and say, you give testimony, you have love for Christ, you, you hope in Christ. The, the works of faith are of Christ. I, I see that. So the apostle is not addressing uh, salvation by works. So what impressed him about the Thessalonians? It wasn't that they uh, you know, received the gospel and set up a coat closet and a food pantry and got a PCC running by noon? No, what, what was it that confirmed for Paul? There's a word here that I've mentioned only a couple times, but you'll hear it for the, the rest of the morning. It was another factor in this, that what confirmed for Paul that the Thessalonians had truly received the gospel was that it was in the midst of affliction conflict these adverse conditions are the theme throughout the rest of the book that's what indicated it to paul was it wasn't that they did these new christian things because it was now easy and this was a new way of life all your friends are doing it no it's that it was going to cost them that when when you have the backdrop that's what convinced them Scan 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, he says, For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 2, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And it, in verse 14 of chapter 2, For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God in Christ that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen, as they did from the Jews. That's why Acts 17 is important to the context that you can see, because we're not like years and years and years removed. We're months removed whenever he's writing back there. But to give you a, a picture of Thessalonica, one commentary <laughs> remarked, it was so crime-ridden that they did not even have windows on their houses. Not because they were vandalized, because that would be fewer points of entry for the thieves. Imagine how crime-ridden that would be. But also what effect that would have on your soul, that whenever you went home, you literally walked into a dark place, only lit by a lamp. I mean, that is 
depressing? Hopeless. It's in the midst of that conflict, in the center of a city filled with people of, in that condition that they received the gospel. And Paul knew that he preached it accurately. Yeah, that's where we hear whenever he says it came to you in power and in the spirit and with full conviction. So he knew that he didn't hoodwink them. This was not flattery, but not just because he preached it accurately, but because it was received. And this is not unfathomable. If you've ever been into the jewelry store, they take the diamond and put it against, or so I hear, <laughs> they put it against the black backdrop. The darkness is, a is changed altogether through one light. But if for the diamond, it's the cloth, and for the darkness, it's the light, what is it for faith? It's the furnace. It's the furnace. It's the affliction that demonstrate the fruits. I'll give it to you now in a verse and later in counsel from Christ. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire. That faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. Amen. What was remarkable about this church is whenever the gospel came to them, they were then willing to give up, to let go, to do without these worldly comforts, these worldly hopes, they turned from idols. Well, what did idols do? They promised that if you worship them, them, that they would return to you. There was this hope that there was some divine, mystical, magical, there was some divine return to your service. But for Paul, he concluded that, no, this church turning away from them and giving testimony to Christ they are, this is genuine because they're willing to suffer because of it. This church so believes these things. They so love. They so hope in Christ. And you'd have to ask that about your own church. Would we want commendation from the Lord? Well, what does it look like? Well, if we just rely on GBF to get the commendation corporately, how does this body get a corporate or full body commendation except for that all of the parts are faithful? You are a part of the body and your faithfulness lends itself to the response from the Lord to bless this church. How do you protect this church? and we don't have sentries out there walking back and forth, how do you protect it? In the quietness of your own home. How you respond and how you handle your family, your marriage, your, your parenting, your workplace, is the reputation of this church. It went forth. It went out. That's the reputation of the Thessalonian church. They were so changed that individually, their lives changed so that the body had this testimony about it. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. 
they so quickly turned from their idols. And this is in a matter of weeks, remember, or even you could add a couple months by the time he, he has Timothy go and then return. So some of these, you would imagine, they have their homes plundered, and that wouldn't be a stretch. Probably ripped off in their businesses, uh, lied to. But yet, their faith was on, so, uh, on display so much that they allowed themselves to be restrained by love. We don't have them retaliating. Paul's not saying, hey, you know, tone it down, quit fighting back. He's saying you're doing well. That your faith, your love, your hope endures. As legend has it, which is already my tell, as legend has it, the suffering was so bad that one Thessalonian woman logged into her Facebook account and saw some pictures of some friends, well, ex-friends. They were doing something and they left her out. Obviously, this is hyperbole. Y'all looking at me straight face like, I'm, Facebook, really? But as a demonstration of her faith, she saw that and did not become bitter that she was left out. She didn't write that, I know, that you know, that I know, that you left me out kind of comment. She did good. She served. She wasn't bitter. That is not an aspect of, mm, no, that's a matter of your faith. Whenever you see those trials, those afflictions, is it small? Did I give a small enough example? I mean, they were being killed by their countrymen. And we're dealing with, we were left out of spa day or off the hunting trip. Is that a matter of your faith in how you respond? Please nod. <laughs> it is. It very much is. Because in, in that conflict, we have that choice now. Am I going to turn back to the ways that I used to live Respond the way that I always have or the way that everyone else of the world does. Or has Christ so affected me? Am I going to allow this simple command to so confront me that rather than doing everything that I want to, everything I have habituated, everything that I am known for in my reputation, now that I'm a Christian, I'm going to hold fast to the word of God and choose and go differently. That's a matter of our faith. The Thessalonians had such a reputation that whenever it was changed, it went forth throughout the land. Do we want that kind of commendation? That should be another nod. But I, I use hyperbole, obviously, to make the point that uh, I have not been chased down, risking my life but I have other afflictions that the Lord has appointed to me to, to confront the same need that I have, the same need for faith. He also says a labor of love. These two words, labor is a trouble, a toil. This involves weariness and fatigue. And love, the, this is the agape love, a full giving with no return expected. This is at Luke 6.32, that it's not that you would give to your friends because they'll give back, but this is giving to your enemies. This is giving yourself to the point whenever you have to modify agape love with 
the labor, this toilsome weariness, like that is extending yourself. That's how impactful it was. They undertook any trouble to love and to serve and to give and to minister. And this is of the intentions of their heart. So he's not talking about, hey, you did these loving things, but the, their intention of their faith, their hope, and their love. Does that, does that bring a verse to mind? Faith, hope, and love. These three abide. But I'm waiting. The greatest is, we got there. The greatest is love. Why? Will hope end? Well, in Romans 8, Paul says that who hopes for what they already have? So whenever you now have it and you now realize it in Hebrews 11 it says now faith is the conviction of things not seen so when you have it and you can see it you can understand it has faith run its course and now you have the object yes has your faith now gone from a conviction of things not seen to the reality of things understood yes does love end Love infuses all of this. It is for the the Thessalonians, but also for us, that love, once it has the hope that it has been waiting for in the full understanding in faith, now it can grab a hold of this possession and do what? Indulge. You have this, this love that has permeated everything, and that's the motive that keeps you going. Why would you have faith? Is it just a better way to live? No, it's, it's motivated by love. I, I don't know what happened. I, I've heard about Christ. I understand and I hope in him. I have faith in him. And now his love has just infused me. And it's through that understanding that here I go. Praise the Lord. And whenever Paul sees that, he says, this endures even in the hardest of conflicts. That, that's how I know it's genuine. So whenever it gives up in the easiest of conflicts, the pouring oneself out, that is a demonstration of the love that has been poured into us. And we have examples of this. I think it'd be easy to always assume that it's out of a a fear of man or self-glorification that we would be so laboring in love that we've reached the end of ourselves. There are seasons in our lives that we have been serving with somebody, you know, think Galatians 6, 2, that you've bearing up somebody's burdens and that season is long And it's been out of love that you have toiled in this. Have you ever reached the end of yourself and thought, I don't know that I can do this anymore. I have expired myself. I have labored in love. What do you want to do at that point? Bail? Do you want to bail? I I don't think that there's 
there's something wrong with those who would labor so long in love to grow weary. You're doing, you're growing weary in doing good. Are you tired? Mm Mm-hmm. But what you're doing is you are, yes, you have a lot of plates spinning, but if these plates spinning are opportunities for you to love and to pour out Christ, do you want to extricate yourself from that because you're tired? Isn't that the very thing that in the root of your soul gives you a joy that endures? It is. And that's what he sees here from a church. I, I wouldn't want any of us, and, and I hear it all the time with, Oh, I've loved this person so far. We need to set up. What's the word? Boundaries. I can't love them anymore. I need to set up a boundary with which they are stopped, thwarted. It's a temptation for all of us. But I, I, would, I would think that at the end of your life, no one in here would say, I have labored in love too much. It's, I think we actually tend to fear loving too much before we do it. I don't want to do that. You know, that's going to cost me too much. So ah, I won't love that much. I don't want to go any further. But guys, we have what? For some of us, 20, 30, 40, maybe 50 years. And then you're going to give an answer for what you've poured this life out doing. And I am going to stand before the Lord and I can't, let me, uh, one second, send me back to the age of 30. I got a few unfinished business pieces to get done. No, I, it's already done. The work has already been done. Will I say, I labored a little too long in, in love. I, I should have cut that down. I don't think so. And the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the one, if, somebody had hope in something, this is an an aspect of endurance. You don't see hope just like quickly, typically. And if we modify a steadfastness of hope, will you see what somebody hopes for? Because it's that object that they long for and they want and they strive for it. So there's kind of a length of time there. But this is modified. The steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ so Paul wants to know, hey, have you, guys, have you guys endured? And now he's hearing over a short time that they have endured. But knowing the, the difficulty, was that hope really something that you're still going after? And the way Paul left, that probably put a little pep in his step to uh, get, to the, get to prayer, not knowing what happened. But this word here, hope, I want you to to imagine or to to take a, a word picture here. This word is defined as a joyful and positive, confident expectation. Confident expectation. So in the Christian sense, it's referring to eternal salvation. And it's joyful because if it was not joyful, you had a confident expectation of doom, that would be... Uh, despair or dread. But what picture comes to mind whenever I say confident expectation? Well, you would probably think, well, I'm, I'm envisioning something that there's assurance 
that there is a resolve or a peace to it. This, this person who is confident is not somebody who's easily shaken, but they're not argumentative. They don't have to fight and, and argue with you that the word of God is true or that the, the things about Christ are true. They have a resolve to them because they know no matter what you come up with, the word of God is true. But add to that expectation And the picture you get is somebody so resolved that what has been promised is going to come to pass, that they are unshaken, unmoved, that there is a resolve that is going to make it through any affliction. When we use hope, it's usually like a, that'd be cool. You know, I hope so. And it's like more like a flip of a coin. But the biblical word hope is this confident expectation. And it is so confident. Listen to a description in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 18 and 19, about this hope, what the, the picture is here of an anchor. He says, We who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. How do I know what's that I'm that I'm connected to Christ that whenever he went in, he put an anchor on my soul, a chain. I am chained to the priest who's in the inner inner circle. Could you rest If you were chained to Christ, could you rest? Well, I had had 1 Peter 1 for us. Listen to this this from Christ in Matthew 7. I I think this gives a visual to what what, uh, the Apostle Paul is looking at. In Matthew chapter 7, Christ says this. He says, Every then, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now it may be because our music leader had us sing, On Christ the solid rock I stand. What part of... That do you think I would want us to highlight? Well, we have everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man. Yes. But then our mind goes right to the sure foundation. And you think I'm going to go there because of the anchor of anchor to the soul. But what we miss, but what was the evidence for Paul is in between there whenever Christ said, The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. What does that mean? Those who would hear the words of Christ, those who would receive them and say, yes, I agree. Is it tested? 
Yeah. And what does it sound like whenever it's, I mean, these are all uh, imagery for what we talk about our trials. The, it, the rain fell, floods, winds being beat on. That is what demonstrates. That's the furnace that would prove that if what you have said, what you believe, what you give testimony to is legit, it's because whenever it's rained on, whenever it's blown against, whenever it's beaten, it then demonstrates. If this were a home that was built wonderfully and the rain never came, if you never had difficulty, would you really know what you believe? It would be something that you'd give mental assent to, but you would never know if you're actually going to follow the word of God, unless he made it difficult for you. And then you had to choose something different. And he's making it difficult on all of us. Why? So that our soul would be anchored to Christ. Paul would either have the longevity of watching the Thessalonians, which we know he didn't have, or this storm came with such brutal force that you would say that foundation is solid because the rest of what Christ said there, that the rains came and they beat against the other man's house, but since it was founded on, well, out of mud, that it washed away. No, in one storm. So imagine how hot it is for the Thessalonians. In one storm, he can say, one storm being these amount of months, you have a steadfast hope. Praise the Lord. With these, these people, while at the point with which we read this letter, they're not made full. They're not fully mature. But is this not an impressive start for them. Paul was impressed by them. And he gives them the commendation, which is where everything comes together for us. And they were commended because they received these things. And Paul says, I know it's true because you have so received them that you have like super abounded in, in hope to the point that, uh, you come on back here. <laughs> Don't just sit down and not work. Don't just quit your jobs. You know, come back here. There's a responsibility with this. That's how far they took it. They had so grabbed onto, it was such a relief to receive the word of God. And that's for us. When the gospel was received there, faith, hope, and love were a package deal. Who would say, yes, I want my salvation to be faith, hope, and love. That's the package deal. Hold on. There's a few accessories. Trials and difficulties are in there as well. You still signing up? For all who desire to be godly will be persecuted. So it's not just faith, hope, and love, and it's not just trials and difficulties, but there's other aspects of the gospel, and that is change. That is sanctification. That is glorification. When the gospel is received, the old life goes. When the gospel is received, the new and enduring life comes. But also when the gospel is received, it's in the midst of these storms. As I had said, the ones in which now I must live differently. I've read this in the scriptures. Now am I going to apply it? Well, the storm comes. And if the gospel has been received, then you have the power. You have the instruction. You have the hope. 
now we are working on the obedience and the endurance in obedience to put these things into practice. But your work of faith, that actionable response, that demonstration is your faith on display. I mean, my, my disobedience is a matter of my faith. It's not a matter of how hard the trial was. Has the Lord given you anything that guarantees would overtake you and you have to turn to idols? That's 1 Corinthians 10. No. So if I'm falling short in obedience, it is because of my faith. It's not because of the affliction. And that's hard to tell you because I go through the same things and I know that I am bound to a body that is weak. But I want to close and give an encouragement that would, would stimulate thought on this. We're thinking about the, the Thessalonians and, and their conversion, and it's, uh, I, I think the, the words are, could be few, but I think this is actually a pretty remarkable transformation that they've had. And there are some, and, and we know, we've been in conversation where they say, I wish my testimony were this bold, you know, that I had that Damascus Road type testimony, but I don't. I wish I had some amazing transformation, right? I think there's a subtle desire in there to think that if I had this amazing transformation, then I would have assurance of my salvation. I could rest solid on that. But for any of us, if, if our testimony is not this, like the Thessalonians, where we were worshiping idols actively in the temple uh, and joining with prostitutes. I mean, that, that's not the most common testimony that we find in the church. Is our testimony still remarkable? I mean, for some, it, they think about it as though it was just a small little tweak in direction. Were you so close to Christ that your salvation was just a minor tweak and like nobody can tell? Like, oh, you're a Christian now? Oh, man, I thought you always were. Is it that salvation has made little to no difference? Well, no, you would say. So then my question would be, why can't today be the day that you would respond like the Thessalonians? Why is it that you're going to wait for this storm to pass to then resume your Christian love? Or your faith? Why is today not the day of radical transformation? Well, I could say it this way. You walked in here as a Christian, right? Has the ship already sailed on radical transformation? I mean, I'll use myself as an example. Look at me. Do you think that I am so close to Christ that you say, this guy is just a few tweaks away. There's no radical. Don't look at my wife. Okay. <laughs> but think about this. Would, would you look at anybody and say there's no more radical change that could happen? No. And it is through this right here, through the difficulties, the trials. It is through what happens at 555 Main Street, your home. It's what happens whenever you're in the workplace 
it, it like that is the context with which this great transformation and the the reputation of your works of faith your labor of love that's where it's going to happen we're not waiting for the storms to pass to grow in our faith today is the day let's pray Lord, these are uh, difficult things to, to think about and ponder because we're fallen, we're weak. And Lord, in many cases, we could give testimony that we have started out well. But Lord, give us the endurance. And Lord, for the, the things of conviction, uh, through seeing what, what you had put on display there in, in Thessalonica, where that conviction comes to us, Lord, let today be the day. We, we can't force it on anyone, and I pray that this would not be something that is forgotten by tomorrow morning, but that this word of God would rest securely in our hearts. Lord, that you are a God of radical transformation. As we sang, sang to you, Lord, you have made your enemies your friend. And Lord, if we're not done. Draw us nearer to you. But Lord, let us have the eyes to see that it is through our afflictions, through the difficulties that you are bringing in our lives, that's what moves us towards you. May we not desire to sit on the sidelines and wait for those storms to pass and then work out our faith in our own strength. But it's in the strength and in the joy of the Holy Spirit that you're using these difficulties, that you're using difficult people, uh, one of which is probably us, to accomplish your work. Lord, may we be hopeful above all else and, and labor in love. Lord, that, this, that our lives, this is your project. You are sanctifying a people for your own possession, not us. So may we labor hard, Lord, to be sanctified, to be obedient, to be joyful in all that you bring us. And Lord, do this, and may we rejoice whenever we see it done. When we see lives changed, Lord, may we rejoice. In Christ's name, I ask all of these things. Amen.